giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Victoria Guido, and with me today is Dr. Adil Akhtar, founder and CEO of Psionic, a company whose mission is to develop advanced prosthesis that are affordable for everyone. Adil, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Victoria. This is fun. Yes, I'm, I'm excited to meet you. So I, I actually ran into you earlier this week at a San Diego tech meetup, and I'm curious just to hear more about your company, Psionic. Yeah. And so as you mentioned, we develop advanced bionic limbs that are affordable and accessible. And this is actually something I've wanted to do my whole life ever since I was seven years old. Uh, my parents are from Pakistan. I was born in the Chicago suburbs, but uh, I was visiting and uh, that was the first time I met someone missing a limb and she was my age, missing her right leg, using a tree branch as a crutch, um, living in poverty. And that's kind of what inspired me to go into this field. Wonderful. And maybe you can start with what gaps in the market did you see in current prosthetic ability? When we first started making these prosthetic devices, actually, we were 3D printing them. And we thought that the biggest issue with prosthetic devices was that um, they were uh, way too expensive. And so that with 3D printing, we'd be able to you know, reduce the prices on it. And that's, that's true. It was actually one of the biggest issues, but it wasn't the biggest issue. After talking with hundreds of patients and clinicians, the number one thing that we found that patients and clinicians would uh, raise issue with was that their super expensive bionic hands were breaking all the time. And, you know, these were made with like injection molded plastics and custom machine steel, and they weren't doing anything crazy with it. They would accidentally hit the hand against like the side of a table, but because they were made out of rigid components, they would end up snapping at those joints. And a natural hand, for example... If you bang a natural hand against like a table or a, or a rigid object, then um, it flexes out of the way. It has compliance in it, right? And that's why it's able to survive those types of hits and impacts a little bit more. It forced us to think outside of the box of how can we still leverage um, the low-cost manufacturing of like 3D printing, but make this hand more robust than anything out there. And that's when we started looking into soft robotics. And with soft robotics, instead of making rigid um, links in your robot. So instead of having like rigid joints and, and components, you'd use uh, soft materials like silicone that are more akin to like your skin, right? And, and your own biological tissues that are more flexible and compliant. So um, we started making the fingers out of like rubber and silicone. And now we've been able to do things like punch through flaming boards. And I dropped it from the roof of my house 30 feet up in the air and it survived. We put it in a dryer for 10 minutes. It survived tumbling around in a dryer. I've arm wrestled against the paratriathlete national champion and lost. So this thing was built to, um, you know, uh, survive a, a lot more than, you know, just uh, hitting your hand against the side of a table. Wow, that sounds incredible. And I love that, you know, you started with a premise and then you got feedback from your users and found a completely different problem. But even though that same problem still existed about the low cost. Absolutely. Wow. So taking back a little bit more to the beginning, so you knew you always wanted to do prosthetics since you grew up in Pakistan and saw people with without their limbs. Take me a little bit more from the beginning of the journey. When did you decide to start the company officially? Yeah. So, um, I, and, and just to clarify, so uh, I was just visiting Pakistan for the summer. I grew up uh, and was raised here in the in the U.S., so I went to um, Loyola University Chicago for undergrad, and I got a bachelor's degree in biology there, followed by a master's in um, computer science. And the original plan was to actually become an MD working with patients with amputations and uh, you know, developing prosthetics for them. 
But while I was uh, an undergraduate student at Loyola, I took my first computer science class and I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about coding and programming and engineering. And I realized that if I became a straight up MD, I wouldn't get to do any of the cool things that I was learning in my um, in my computer science classes. I wanted to figure out a way to combine the, like my passions in engineering and computer science with clinical medicine and, and prosthetics. And right down the street at a um, hospital formerly known as the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, it's now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. It's the number one rehabilitation hospital in the U.S. for the last 31 years. They made these huge breakthroughs in mind-controlled bionic limbs where they were doing the surgery where they would reroute your nerves to other muscles that you already have on your body. And then when you try to like imagine bending like your phantom elbow or making a phantom fist, like your chest muscles would contract. And then you could use those signals to then control this robotic limb that was designed by Dean Kamen that was sponsored by DARPA and cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars. That was just absolutely incredible. And it was this perfect mixture of uh, you know, engineering and clinical medicine, and and it was exactly what I wanted to get into. But as you'd mentioned, we're all about accessibility, and a hundred thousand dollar cost hand will would not cut it, right? And so um, I ended up uh, finishing a master's in computer science. I, I taught at Loyola for a couple of years, and then I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, where I got another master's in electrical and computer engineering. Um, a PhD in neuroscience, and then I finished the first year of medical school before I left um, to run psionic because, you know, it was a lot more fun building bionic limbs than finishing (laughs) medical school. And while I was a graduate student, we started 3D printing our own prosthetic hands, and we got the chance in 2014 to go down to um, Quito, Ecuador, where we were working with a nonprofit organization called the Range of Motion Project. And their whole mission is to provide prosthetics to those who can't afford them in the U.S., Guatemala, and Ecuador. And um, we went down there and we were working with a patient who had lost his left hand 35 years prior due to machine gun fire from a helicopter. He was in the Ecuadorian army and there was a border war between Ecuador and Peru. And um, Juan, our patient, in front of international news stations said that he felt as though a part of him had come back. And that was because he actually made a pinch with his left hand for the first time in 35 years. And you have to imagine the hand at that time, it was three times the size of an average like uh, natural hand, right? Adult human hand. Had wires going everywhere, plugged into breadboards, power supplies, the walls, you name it, right? And despite that, he said that a part of him had come back. And he actually forgot how to make a pinch with his left hand. And we had to retrain his brain by placing a mirror in front of his left side, reflecting his right hand, uh, tricking his brain into thinking that his left hand was actually there. And he would make a pinch with both sides and it would reactivate the muscles in his, his forearm on his left side. And when he said that, that's when I realized that if I stay in academia, then this just ends up as a journal paper. And if we want everyone to feel the same way that Juan did, we had to commercialize the technology. And so that's when Psionic was born. Well, I love that you're working on that as someone who's from Washington, D.C. and done a lot of work in veterans and homeless organizations and seen how life-changing getting access to limbs and regaining capability can be for people. Absolutely. And in fact, our first user in the U.S. Um, is a U.S. Army sergeant who lost his uh, hand in Iraq in, um, in 2005 due to a roadside bomb, Sergeant Garrett Anderson. And um, with our hand, he used a hook on a daily basis. And with our hand, he's actually able to feel his daughter's hand, which is something that he wasn't able to do with any other prosthesis. And, you know, for him to tell us that, I mean, that is why we do what we do. 
Right. And I saw on your website that you have several patents and have talked about the advances you've been able to make in what I'm going to call a sensory motor bionic limbs. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the advancements you've been able to make since you decided to commercialize this? The first thing that usually users notice is that, and clinicians notice as well, is that the hand is the fastest bionic hand in the world. So the fingers close in about 200 milliseconds. And to put that into context, we can blink our eyes in about 300 milliseconds. So it's technically faster than the blink of an eye, which is kind of a cool uh, statistic there. So it's super fast and the fingers are super resistant to impact, right? So they're, they're very durable. And so we've got a couple patents on both of those items in particular. And then um, there's the touch feedback aspect. So this is the only hand on the market to give users touch feedback. And so the methods that we have to mold the fingers to enable that sensory feedback, that is what our third patent is on for the hand. And it just looks really cool. It's like a, it's got like this black carbon fiber on it that, um, you know, just looks really futuristic and bionic, right? And it just gives users the confidence that, you know, this isn't something to be pitied. This is something that's really cool. And, you know, especially for our war heroes, that's something to be celebrated, right? That, you know, I lost my hand for our country. And now I've got this like really cool one that um, can do a a lot of the things that my hand used to do. Right. And I also saw that it's reimbursable by Medicare in the US. And I was curious if you had any lessons learned from that process for getting eligible for that. Yeah. And that was part of the goal from the very beginning. After we did our customer discovery process, where we figured out what the pain points are and found out that durability was one of the um, the biggest issues. Obviously, one of the other issues uh, was that the really expensive price of the other hands, and typically what we call a multi-articulated hand. So that's uh, one where each one of the fingers move individually. Those are only covered by the VA. So if you're in the military or uh, workman's comp. So if you had a workplace accident, and that only accounted for about. About 10% of the US market. And what the clinicians kept telling us over and over again was that if you can get the hand covered by Medicare, then uh, usually all the other insurance companies will follow suit, like your, your Blue Cross and Blue Shield, your Aetna, your Kaiser, etc. So that was our design goal from the beginning, right? So how can we hit a price point that Medicare would cover, but also make this fully featured that no other hand can do any of these other things? What it primarily came down to was that we had hit that was hitting that price point. And if, as long as we hit that price point, then Medicare was going to be fine with it. So we invented a lot of the manufacturing methods that we use in-house um, to make um, the hand in particular. So we do all the silicone molding. We do all the carbon fiber work. We do all the fabric work. We do all the assembly of it in-house in our, in our warehouse here in San Diego. And by being so vertically integrated we're able to then, you know, iterate very quickly and make these innovations um, happen at a, a much more rapid scale so that we can get them out there faster and then help more people who need it. Right. So you've really grown tremendously from when you first had the project and now you have a team here in San Diego. Do you have any lessons learned for enabling your team to drive faster in that innovation? Yeah. The biggest thing that uh, I feel like a lot of things come down to is just having grit, right? So especially with a startup, you know, it's always going to be a roller coaster ride. And for us, I think one of the big motivating factors for us is the patients themselves, right? Um, When they get to do these things that um, they weren't able to do before. So another one of our our first patients, um, Tina, 
Um, she had just become a grandmother and she was able to feed her granddaughter for the first time because she was able to hold the, the bottle with her bionic hand, uh, the ability hand, and then hold her uh, granddaughter with her natural hand and then feed her using the ability hand. It's like I said, moments like that is why we do what we do. And it gives us that motivation to like, you know, work those long hours, make those deadlines so that we can help as many people as possible. Right. So you have that motivating power behind your idea, which makes a lot of sense. What else in your customer your discovery sprint was surprising to you as you move through that process? So there was definitely the, the robustness that was surprising. There was the cost that wasn't like necessarily the, the highest priority thing, which we thought would be the highest priority. And the speed and, and just having to rely on visual feedback. You have to kind of look at the hand as you're doing the task that you're doing, but you have to look at it very intently, right? So that takes like a lot of cognitive load, right? You're, you have to pay attention very specifically to like, am I, am I doing the right movement with my hand in ways that you wouldn't necessarily have to do with a natural hand? And by making the hand move be so responsive as it is and move so quickly, in addition to having that touch feedback, that reduces, or at least we believe it'll reduce a lot of that cognitive load for our patients so that they don't have to be constantly just like monitoring exactly what the hand is doing in order to do a lot of the tasks or the activities of daily living that they're doing on, on a day-to-day basis. The whole customer discovery process drove what features that we were going to focus on in actually making this hand a reality. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I love hearing about what came up that surprised people. And, and I appreciate your commitment to that process to really drive your business idea and to solve this problem that, that happens to so many people in the United States. Do you know how, well, how widespread is this issue? And of course, I'm sure you're targeting more than just the United States with rollout, but yeah, so globally, there's over 10 million people with hand amputations, and um, 80% of them actually live in developing nations, and uh, less than 3% have access to affordable rehabilitative care. So uh, it's a huge need worldwide, and we want to make sure that everyone has access to like the best available prosthetic devices. Right. That makes sense. So I guess commercializing this product leads to more room, more more availability for for across for everyone, right? Absolutely. And, you know, an interesting thing about that, too, is that so as we were developing these, um, the, the hand in particular, we've optimized it for humans to do human tasks. And uh, we have a programming interface that we put on it that allows you know researchers to like control each one of the fingers, like you control the speed, the position and like the force from each one of those fingers, as well as you can stream all of the, the touch sensors like over Bluetooth or over a USB connection. And then also um, the location of each one of those fingers as well. A lot of robotics researchers who are building humanoid robots and robot arms um, to do other tasks like manufacturing and um, you know robotic surgery and things like that. They have been purchasing our hand too. It's so notably, for example, NASA and uh, Meta, so Facebook Meta, they've um, purchased our hands and NASA's putting it on like a humanoid astronaut robot, which hopefully will eventually go into space. And then on Earth, they'd be able to control it and then, you know, manipulate objects in space. And it's opened up an entirely new market. But the critical thing here is that it's the exact same hand that the humans are getting, that the, the robots are getting. And what this allows us to do is just expand our, our volume of production and, and our sales so that we can actually further drive down the costs and the pricing for the human side of things as well. So if we're talking about places in like India or Pakistan or Guatemala or Ecuador, where there's no government incentives in place to reimburse at a rate that they might in the U.S., then we can actually get the price point to one that's actually affordable in those areas as well. And so we're really excited about those prospects. 
That's so cool that future robot astronauts will be financing people who have, you know, <laughs> no ability to go into space or, or anything like that. That's, that's a, a, a cool business idea. I wonder um, when did that happen for you? Or what was that like when you realized that there was this other potential unmapped mar- or untapped market for robotic limbs? It's interesting. It was always in the back of our minds because as I was a PhD student, I was in the uh, PhD group that focused on robotics in particular, uh, more so than, than prosthetics. And I was the first one in the group to actually kind of have the, the prosthetic spin on thing. And so I had an idea of where kind of the market was for the robotic side of things. And I had some connections as well. And so um, I was actually giving a talk at Georgia Tech um, early last year. The director of the Georgia Tech, the, their Robotics Institute, um, Dr. Seth Hutchinson, he was telling me that, you know, he was like, you should go to like the big robotics conference, ICRA, because people are going to like absolutely love this product for their robots. And we were just like, huh. We never considered that. And so um, we decided to go and it was just absolutely nuts. Like we've had like researchers from all over the world, like being like, how can I get this hand? Uh, And, you know, compared to a lot of the robotic hands that are out there, like even on the robotic side, this is a much lower price point than um, what they've been dealing with. And by solving a lot of the problems on the human side, like durability and sensory feedback and like dexterity um, and the pricing, um, it actually solved all of the problems on the robotic side as well. So it was just like after we had gone to that conference, we realized that, yeah, we can actually make this work as well. That's really cool. And it sounds like tapping into this robotics market and networking really worked for you. What else about your kind of market research or strategy seemed to be effective in your business growth? This is interesting as well. So um Half of our sales actually come from social media, uh, which for a medical device company is, is usually unheard of because usually the, the model is for a medical device is where you have a group of sales reps like located across the regions that you're, you're selling in. So like across the U.S. and they would visit each one of the clinics and then um, they would uh, you know work with the clinicians directly in getting these on, on to patients. Yeah, that usually accounts for like, you know, 99% of sales. And so for us, for half of them to come from social media, that's... Um, it was a goal that we had set out to, but it was also surprising that, that we accounted for so much uh, of our volumes uh, and our revenue. The way we set it up was that we wanted to make videos of our hand that kind of highlighted things that our hand could do that were, were novel and unique. And so, for example, we wanted to highlight the durability of the hand, um, as well as like, you know, the, the dexterity and the touch feedback. And so some of the first videos that we made were like arm wrestling against a bionic hand. And what's cool about that is that the general public just found that very interesting and uh, in general. But also when a clinician and a patient sees that, wow, this hand can actually withstand the forces of an actual like arm wrestling match, then they're also just as impressed. And the same thing with like, you know, punching through three wooden boards that we set on fire, right? If it can handle that, then it can handle like activities of daily living. General public sees it and it's just like, whoa, right? That's so cool. But then um, as well as like the clinicians and the patients, they see that and they were like, you know, my, my prosthetic hand couldn't do this before. And so then they contact us and we're like, you know, how can we get your hand? And then we'll either put them in contact with a clinician or we'll work with one of the clinicians that they are already working with then go through their insurance that way. And so it's just been um, a really exciting and, and fun way to generate, like, you know, ex- expand our market and um, generate sales that we didn't necessarily think was um, going to be a viable way from the start. Right. I totally get it. I mean, I want one and both my hands still work. 
giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Thoughtbot is thrilled to announce our own incubator launching this year. If you are a non-technical founding team with a business idea that involves a web or mobile app, we encourage you to apply for our eight-week program. We'll help you move forward with confidence in your team, your product vision, and a roadmap for getting you there. Learn more and apply at tbot.io slash incubator. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash I-N-C-U-B-A-T-O-R. Have you ever seen someone rock climb with the prosthetic hand? Not yet, but that is something that is definitely on our docket. Okay, well, we need to do it. We can, since we're both in San Diego, I can help you. <laughs> Sweet. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we can figure that out. Because there, especially in, in the climbing gyms, there's usually groups that come in and, and climb with prosthetic limbs on a regular basis, since it's, it's a right. kind of like a surprisingly accessible sport. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so one of the, the, the great things about being here in San Diego is that there's like a ton of incredible resources for building prosthetics and then for users of them as well. So the Challenge Athletes Foundation is like located 10 minutes from us. So we're located in Scripps Ranch. And the Challenge Athletes Foundation, they're uh, like over in like the Serena Valley area. They hold the paratriathlon every year, right? And so um, we just went to their event like uh, a couple of months ago and it was absolutely incredible, right? And so we've got like a five-year goal of making an ability lag. So we have the ability hand right now, right? So the ability leg, we want to actually be able to perform a triathlon. So run, bike, and swim um, with the leg. And I think that would be a phenomenal goal. And all the pieces here are, are here in San Diego. We've got the military hospital. And so we've got like the veteran population, right? We've got the Challenge Athletes Foundation. We've got UCSD and their incredible engineering. We've got two prosthetic schools right around LA. So Loma Linda University and California State University, Dominguez Hills. And there's only 11 in the entire nation. And two of them just happen to be right around here, right? It's a med tech hub, right? There's like a bunch of med tech companies that and uh, both startups and like huge ones like Nuvasiv that are around in the area. And it's a huge engineering place too with like Qualcomm. And so we want to bring all of those resources together. And it's my goal to turn San Diego into the bionics capital of the world, where people from all over the world are getting are coming here to have the most advanced devices ever created. Oh, I love that idea. And and you've just moved to San Diego a few years ago, is that Actually, right? six months ago. So it's very new for six us. <laughs> well, you sound like me when I moved to San Diego. I was like, it's great here. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you still find it to be great so that, <laughs> so that we... Yeah, I love it. I've been here for two years now. And, and there, yes, there's more to it than just the weather being good all the time. <laughs> there's a lot here. It doesn't here. hurt though, right? Yeah. And I mean, I love that I can still do my networking events outdoors you know all year long so like going on hikes and stuff versus being indoors in the winter but I, I yeah I find it fascinating that San Diego just has so much biotech all around and I will I'm happily support how I can with turning it into a the bionic limb capital I think that's a great idea well so you know I want to take it back we're talking about the future right now I wanted to ask about building your team right so you've you started the company almost seven years ago and you've grown the team a lot since then did you have any essential principles or values that you started with when you were building out your team? Yeah. So when we were first hiring, I was uh, still a PhD student, right? When I, when I started the company, our, our, our first employee was actually my undergraduate student. He's currently our director of engineering, Jesse Kornman. And um, we specifically were recruiting people that did stuff outside of the lab. 
right? So um, the electrical engineers and the mechanical engineers that we initially hired, right? We wanted to make sure that, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, the university projects that they were working on. And we would find a lot of our early people from uh, like car teams. So like this was like building like um, like a solar car. So the Line I Solar Car was one of our places where we get a lot of our early employees, as well as like the electrical vehicle concept team and like design build fly and like these student organizations where they had like competitions and they had to like build real tangible things to compete in with. And the thing is, is that those are the people who do this stuff for fun. And you learn the most when when you're having fun doing this stuff, right? And so we would always look for that stuff in particular. And there were there were some litmus tests that we'd have to be able to kind of like weed out very quickly, like w- what people know what. And so for like electrical engineers, we would always ask if they know surface mount soldering, right? Um, because it's not like your your typical like like soldering like on like a, a perf board or like even like using a breadboard. It's like you have a circuit board and you have to like solder these very small components on there. That if you know how to solder those small components, you typically know how to code them as well. So they have some embedded systems um, background as well and some PCB design experience as well. And so that was like a quick litmus test that we used for the electrical engineers. For the mechanical engineers, it was typically if they knew how to do surface modeling. And so we would ask them, like, you know, uh, how would you, like, make the palm of a hand where, where you've got these, like, complex structures and these complex surfaces that have different geometries and different curvature? And if they were able to do surface modeling, then we knew that they'd be able to CAD that up pretty quickly. They probably have some sort of 3D printing experience from that as well. Um, and that they can just rapidly iterate and prototype on the devices. And so that worked really, really well. And so we were able to get a lot of bright engineers who early on in the company and many who were student interns at the time that, uh, you know, eventually even went on to like Microsoft and Google or what the student route to like MIT and places like that. And uh, we were very fortunate to be in the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign's um, ecosystem, where it was just one of the best engineering schools in the world to develop this kind of stuff. That's great. So you had really specific skills that you needed, <laughs> and you kind of knew the type of work and experience that led to that. As you've expanded your team and you're building a culture of collaboration, how do you set expectations with how you all work together? Yeah. And, you know, as, as a startup, we all wear many, many hats, right? So uh, and my my job, I feel like, is to fill in all the gaps. And so some days I might be doing marketing. Some days I might be like, you know, visiting a clinic and doing sales. Other times I, uh, I'm i working with the engineering team to make sure that we're on track over there. And it's like, you know, all this stuff in between, right? And so being able to, you know, work cohesively like that and, and put on those many hats so like so that you know every part of the process from the the marketing sales sides, but also like the engineering and operations side, I think that's really allowed us to get to the the point where we have by doing all these different functions together. That makes sense. And are you all, so you're all located in San Diego now, so you have to be in person to work on Robot Hand? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, we found that it was, it was much easier to build like a, a physical object in person than, than uh, it was to do things remotely. You know, at the beginning of COVID, we actually did try to like, you know, we moved like 3D printers out into people's houses and like, you know, the manufacturing equipment. And then I remember just to put together a power switch um, that usually took like one hour to do in the lab. Um, it took us a day and a half because we would like one person had like the circuit board, the other person had the enclosure, the other person had like the thing to program it. And then like each thing depended on each other. So you had to keep carting that small piece like back and forth between houses. And it was just a nightmare. 
to do that. And so like after a couple of months, like we ended up moving back into the offices and, and uh, manufacturing there with like a staggered, like working hour, work hours or whatever. And um, it, yeah, at that point we're just like, okay, this is much more efficient when we're all in person. And honestly, a lot of our best ideas have come from just like, you know, me sitting here and then like, like, you know, just walking over to one of the engineers and being like, Hey, what do you think of this idea? And, and, you know, it's a lot harder to do when you're all remote. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. The, just the need to physically put pieces together in a, of the group um, makes it hard to be fully remote. And you get a lot of those ideas flowing when you're in person. What are your, what's on the horizon for you? What are you most excited about in your upcoming feature set? Uh, like I said, one of the reasons why we moved here was to work with the military hospital, right? And so some of the work that we're doing with them is particularly exciting. The way you typically wear these prosthetic devices, right? So you'll have like muscle sensors that are embedded in a, it's like a shell that goes around your residual limb. We call it the socket, right? Think about it as like, you know, like a shoe for your residual limb. And the thing is like, as you're wearing this throughout the day, you know, it starts to get sweaty, it starts to get uncomfortable, like things shift around, like your signals don't like control the hand as well because of all these changes and everything, right? And with the military hospital, we're working on something called um, osseointegration. So instead of having this, this socket that's molded to your residual limb that you shove your arm into, you have a titanium implant that goes inside your bones and then comes out of your body and then you directly attach the hand to your bones like a limb naturally should be, Right. And then on top of that, instead of using these muscle sensors on the outside of your body, we're actually working on implanted electrodes with some of our collaborators. For example, at University of Chicago, they're doing brain implants to control uh, prosthetic limbs. And um, at a, uh, a company in Dallas called Nerves Incorporated, that's working with the University of Minnesota and UT Southwestern, they're doing um, a nerve implants like in your forearm and in, in your uh, upper arm to control prosthetic limbs. And with those, um, you get much more fine control. So it's not like you're just controlling different grips, like preset grips in the hand, but you're actually doing individual finger control. And then when you touch the finger, it's actually stimulating your nerves to make it feel like it's coming from your hand that you no longer have anymore. And this is where we're heading with all of this stuff in the future. And so we built the ability hand to work with clinically available systems now, like, you know, sockets and, and muscle sensors and, and vibration motors that are all outside of the body. But then also when these future technologies come out that are more invasive, that are directly implanted on your nerves, um, as well as into your bones as well. So we're really excited about those prospects uh, coming out in the horizon. That's really cool. <laughs> I mean, that would be really life-changing for a lot of people, I'm sure, to have that ability to really control all your fingers and, and get that extra and could just comfort as well. How do you manage quality into your process, and especially when you're getting invasive and putting in nerve implants? What kind of testing and other types of things do you all do? With the ability hand itself, it was actually a, um, an FDA class one exempt device, meaning that um, we didn't have to go through the formal approval process that you typically do. And that was primarily because, you know, it's, um, it's attached to your residual limb as opposed to uh, going invasive. But with going invasive, um, with our clinical partners, um, they're actually doing um, FDA clinical uh, trials right now. Um, and so they've gone through a lot of those processes. We're starting to enroll some of our patients who are using the Ability Hand to get um, these uh, implanted electrodes. We're, we're kind of navigating that whole process ourselves right now, too. So I think that was one of the reasons why we moved to San Diego, right? To work with and leverage a lot of the expertise 
from people who have done it already, right? From the med tech devices that are, are, are device companies that are big that have gone through those processes and can like kind of guide us through that process as well. So um, we're excited to be able to um, leverage those resources in order to you know streamline these clinical trial processes so that we can get these devices out there more quickly. That's very cool. I'm super excited to hear about that and to learn more about Psionic. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience today as a final takeaway? Absolutely. So um, in order to make all of this um, stuff happen, like uh, we're actually in the middle of raising a round uh, right now. And our, our biggest issue right now is actually that we've got more demand than we can produce. So we're working on scaling our manufacturing here in San Diego. So we're in the middle of an equity crowdfunding round. And we're all about accessibility. So, you know, about making our hand accessible to as many people as possible. So we were like, why don't we make the company accessible as well? And, you know, one of the most beautiful things about doing this as an equity crowdfunding round is our patients actually have invested in the company as well. And and so it's like, you know, we're making these devices for them and then they get to be a part of it as well. And it's just this beautiful synergy that that I couldn't have asked for anything more out of crowdfunding campaign. And so we've raised over 750K already uh, on Start Engine. And you can um, find out more and invest um, for as low as $250 at psionic.io. So that's P-S-Y-O-N-I-C.io slash invest. And the other thing I was going to mention, especially Victoria, since um, you're in San Diego as well, is that I happily give tours to anyone who is in the area. Um, So if anyone wants to see how we build all these bionic hands and um, just like, you know, a cool robotics um, startup in in general, uh, we'd be happy to have you come visit us. That's very cool. I'll have to connect with you later and schedule a tour myself. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm, I'm excited to hear all the things you're working on and hope to see you more in the San Diego community coming up. And we'll share links to the funding page and other information about Psionic in our show notes. You can subscribe to the show and find notes along with a complete transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Mastodon at Victoria Guido. And this podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thank you for listening. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at ThoughtBot.com.